You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon, the sermon is on Hebrews 11, verse 39 through 12, verse 3. In a sense, the sermon is about chapter 11, a well-known chapter, but we will not read all of it. We will begin reading Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 4, and then continue to read at verse 32, and then read through chapter 12, verse 3. So, we start reading Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 4. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man, when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. And it goes on about Enoch and Noah and Abram and the people of the Lord, and then we continue at verse 32. I'll read through chapter 12, verse 3. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Then the actual text for the sermon is verse 39. Through 12 verse 3. 
These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon the sermon is Hebrews 11 and 12, and the theme of the sermon is run. Run the race. You should know I happen to have some sermons on scriptures that use the idea of our faith life as a race we have to run, since in Chilliwack, where I come from, that is the theme for the home visits this year. And that's how I looked for and picked the text for this afternoon's sermon. I did run into a problem, though, with this specific scripture. Not because of the subject. The subject is clear indeed. Run the race. But uh, the way in which the author of this letter or this sermon, uh, let's assume it is Paul, the way in which he deals with his subject is more complicated than I first realized when I made the sermon. His letter or his sermon is woven together in a way that almost not allows us to pull out uh, one thread out of the whole fabric um, without disturbing the pattern. So I hope you understand that this afternoon what we will do is to carefully try to isolate the elements that together form the message of this text, but then also see how they are connected to the rest of the letter and actually to the whole gospel. This approach implies that I will cite other scriptures frequently and extensively, and although I will read them uh, in full to you, it might be wise to have your Bible at hand. According to Hebrews 11 and 12, we run our race, yes, surrounded by witnesses. A whole series of famous men and women from Abel through Enoch and Noah via Abram, Isaac and Jacob to Moses and then from Moses. The whole people of Israel and Rahab and judges and kings and prophets all are called forward to prove something. To prove the power of faith. If you look at the history of Israel, if you look at the leaders of the people, and then ask why it is that they stand out between the rest of the crowd, it is that each and every one of them 
uh, of them, the conclusion must be he, she, they were believers. Applied to the idea of us running a race, apparently not the time it actually takes you to finish the race, race makes you a gold medal candidate. The only question is, do you keep the faith? But what is so special about faith then that the ancients were commended for it, maybe even by it? Well, the sermon to the Hebrews already explained what the secret of their faith was. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's the key issue here. Faith is what you see is not what you get. Or what you see is not the end of what you get. Adam saw the world, but he knew the whole universe was formed at God's command. Abram saw he had no children, but he knew that whole peoples would be named after him. The people of Israel saw that they lived in the desert, but they knew there was a better homeland for them somewhere. Faith teaches us to keep our eyes wide open for what is not yet there, but what will surely come, because the Lord has promised it. Faith, in this sense, is a lot like hope. We are the people who cherish hope. But what, according to Hebrews 11 and 12, is, what is it then that the witnesses of old were waiting for what was promised to them, but they did not yet receive? Well, in the sermon to the Hebrews, this is summarized in two words. The new Jerusalem. In chapter 12, verse 22, we read, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. According to the sermon of the Hebrews, Abram endured his years as a stranger in the promised land because he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Chapter 11, verse 10. So whatever they were blessed with by the Lord already they realized that there was more to come, much more to come. And this is still important to us too, in that we realize that anything God may have given to his people in the past has always meant to be a sign and seal of what was still to come and what is still to come today. A very complicated question is why? They did not receive what was promised. Not a fact, they did not receive it, not all of them, not everything. But why? In the NIV translation we read, 12 verse 40, uh, sorry, 11, 11 verse 40. 
God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. At first sound, I'm not a native speaker, but it sounds to me that uh, uh, it is as if the poor men and women of Old Testament times, well, however hard they would strive and hope, they would be losers anyhow, right? Because the Lord has chosen to fulfill his promises to us, not to them. This, however, is not the case. The phrase, something better for us, is best understood as something better, um, well, <laughs> about us, or something like that, in the sense that it is about something that is planned to happen in our days. And this explanation dovetails with the very opening of the sermon in Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3a. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God has planned something better for us. That sentence is, in a sense, parallel to in these last days, our days. God has spoken to us by his Son. And therefore, the focus of the words, so that only together with us would they be made perfect, is not exclusive, us against them, the saints from all the times, it is inclusive. They, not without us, together. And again, the meaning of the words is not that we as such are necessary for them to be made perfect, but the sense of the words is that the perfection that is revealed to us in our days is also the perfection they were looking for. Now to the us, in the days that this sermon to the Hebrews was first read, this was a living reality. They had seen the fulfillment of the prophecies for Israel in their days. They had witnessed the coming of Jesus in their days, the Son of the Most High, whom was given the throne of his father David, whose kingdom will never end. In him, the promises of God have come full circle. In him, the witnesses of Old Testament times rejoice today. In him, we who live just as long after Christ as Abram lived before him, in him in Christ, we still rejoice today. Together. And it is at this point that the sermon or the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews introduces the image of the ancients as a cloud of witnesses. I don't know if this makes you automatically think of the ancients actually gathering as on the clouds, or so to see, to see what we are doing. But the word cloud here does not mean anything vague like that. 
The cloud is what it is, a dense mass, the thick of it. So, you may sometimes feel lonely, as if you're running the race of faith all by yourself, but you are not. They are cheering you on. There is a spiritual stadium, a theater, and all the spectators are on your side. I know you can't see him. I know you can't hear them. But since when is what you actually see so important in the reality of faith? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There is a mass of saints of old who are involved in God's great battle and whose testimony is meant to encourage you. If they would speak in a physical way, in English, what you would hear is their battle cry, Run! As you now understand, I do not limit the actual testimony of the witnesses to the past. It is true that of all of them, this is the first way in which they testify. Their faithfulness in the past is what they are commended for. for. And their steadfast hope is indeed an example for us. But you know the fun thing about history is that time becomes elastic. If you actually meet someone, meet with someone who has experienced the past in person, give you an example. If my father would tell me about his memories of the Second World War, I could hear that German soldier speak to him, Ich habe zu Hause auch so einen Jungen. History became real to me in that moment. Through scripture, we today are connected to what happened in the past in the same way. If we hear of Abel's blood being shed, we hear the call for justice as if we were there. So for this reason alone, their testimony is not something limited to the past. It is still heard today. It speaks to us today. But what I also understand of this cloud of witnesses is that we don't even have to turn to the past to hear their testimony, but that they are with us today to be a living testimony. Uh, when we read Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23, we encounter the ancients again. Hebrews 12, 22b, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to them. We belong to a spiritual gathering in which we are welcomed by the saints of old. I don't claim to exactly understand how this whole congregation works or how it is present. 
I do know that when the scriptures tell us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that then we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Of course, there is an important question that needs to be answered when we want to understand how the ancients are surrounding us today. Do they, one way or the other, know us? And what if there are hypocrites among us? Do they cheer them on too? Now there are questions that will remain questions because God has chosen not to reveal every detail about life in heaven to us. But I for one have no difficulty accepting that they who see the glory of God can look at the present world and actually see how in all the darkness and misery of this world and of our lives, the very plan of God is being fulfilled. Look, since men invented aircrafts, our whole perception of the world, of perspective, of time and distance has changed dramatically. What do you think will happen to you, to our insights, once we are immediately connected to God? The church in heaven knows of the battle that is going on on earth in our lives. And they take their responsibility. They call the Lord to action. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And they call us to, to run. For they know it's worth it. Which, of course, takes us to the second point of the sermon about us and about persevering. Now, perseverance might well be called, considered the main, the, the main theme and the application of the sermon to the Hebrews that we find in this letter. But what it shows us is that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the prophecies, of the ceremonial law, and that therefore we have reason to persevere. We, um, well, uh, no, let's zoom in. Same thing you see happening in chapter 11 and 12. If, if the ancients could keep the faith while they had seen nothing yet, how much more must we persevere, we who are witnesses of the coming of the Christ? And let's face it, Paul is more direct in his application than preaches today often are or even dare to be. Hebrews 12 verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Well, I do believe that some of you have suffered of the right choices they have had to make. I mean, the struggle against sin can well be that you decide not to do certain things not to react in a certain way the world would expect. And this whole attitude may have cost you. But indeed, has it cost you your blood, your pride maybe, or money, or friends, but not blood, through perseverance. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, Paul, as a good coach, gives a, a 
gives us advice as to how to run the race. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. One way or the other, Paul must have known that his hearers knew that athletes in the old Greek games used to sport naked. They didn't have winter games, no. Of course, this habit was not encouraged by the church. But the idea that the less you would carry with you, the easier it was to run. Well, that was something they were very uh, well aware of in those days. And spiritually, talking about the race of faith, you better run naked. But what I mean is that, look, look, there is, there he is, Abraham, and, and Moses, and David, and Paul, and they are witnesses. They, they testify that it is worth to persevere in, in, in running the race, and they cheer you on. I mean, what could you think of? You could carry with you, you could wear spiritually, that would like impress them. In this arena, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or important or beautiful. This is also about the more complicated ballast we may carry with us. I don't know of all of you what your past may have been like. I don't know of all of you what memories may hold you back or what injuries may slow you down. You know and God knows. But can it not be that he says to you, you give me that extra weight you are carrying with you. Please let me take care of that. And now you go. Look, I'm not saying denying your past will help you in the long run. But I do say that a Christian is defined by his future, not by his past. And then Paul, the good coach, especially advises us to get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. Hey, it does, doesn't it? Entangle, I mean. You know what's interesting about the subject of sin and the letter or sermon to the Hebrews? If you would read through the chapters 9 and 10, you would find out that sin is dealt with extensively. At first in connection to the Old Testament sacrifices, and then in relationship to the one sacrifice of your high priest, Jesus Christ. And you guess what? Once Paul has explained that he has done away with your sins, he only mentions them here in verse 1, and one more time in verse 4. Do you get the message? Sins are a pest. They still are. They get under your skin. They stick to you. They do. They do. And you have to fight them to the point of shedding your blood. You have. But do you know what? Christ has dealt with your sins and their consequences. You have. You have to keep fighting for sure. But never forget, Christ has paid the price for our sins. His blood. What we find finally about perseverance is that the race is marked out for us. 
So there is a set track that we have to follow toward the goal. Point is, we don't know that track exactly. I mean, we haven't had the occasion to scout it out a little bit in order to prepare, prepare ourselves for what is ahead. But this should not surprise us. Look, the faithful of old have always been willing to travel toward the future without knowing where the next step would take them. Abram, on his way to the promised land, Israel in the desert, and even now that Christ has come, the king of the new Jerusalem, the absolute guarantee of our future perfection, even now, we are called to believe what we hope for and to be certain of what we do not see. But Adam and Abram and Paul and all the others, if they, if they could speak to you, man, they would encourage you. It is worth to persevere. Well, actually, they speak to you. And God asked me to be their voice. It is worth it to persevere. But then indeed, finish the sermon, then indeed we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. Jesus knows that here his human name, if you will, is mentioned. Again, typically of the letter or sermon to the Hebrews, to focus on how much our high priest Jesus Christ was one of us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Of course, we, as we are and we know the Bible, we tend to start with the final remark that he was without sin. And from there we conclude life in the end was easier for him, for he couldn't sin. But look, Hebrews 4 verse 15 invites us to follow the historical order of Jesus. A, being one of us. B, being tempted like us. But then C, of Jesus persevering. It's very easy to keep Jesus Christ at a distance by <laughs> using his holiness actually against him. Oh, he is so unlike me. Well, Jesus Christ works the other way around, coming infinitely close to us. I want to be you, and then sharing his holiness with us. It is he who presents himself here as the author and perfecter of our faith. So he is the founder of our faith, both in the sense of giving our faith its substance, for he is what we believe, he is the content of our faith, and in the sense of actually giving faith itself to us. I find a parallel scripture in Philippians 1.6, In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. But then, indeed, the founder of our faith will be the finisher of it, too. He knows where the race set out for us will lead us. 
And he will bring us there. Because he has been there. Gone all the way. Wherever we may find ourselves in our lives. Maybe sometimes weary and losing heart. He has been there. Let him once more fulfill his promises. There is nothing that stands between him and the completion of his promises. Nothing but the time it takes to save you and all the chosen ones. You may look at yourself in honesty and realize how unfit you are in yourself to run this race. How will you be able to leave everything that hinders behind? How will you find the energy, the courage to move on? How will you persevere? Listen to the testimony of those who went before us, who have kept the faith during their lifetime, and who now know they were right, and who have just One message for you. If you could only see what we see, you would run the race with all that you have in you. Now, you can't see what they see. But God does tell us what they see. To encourage us. In the end, have we not seen Christ Jesus In our world, when he came to fulfill the promise of God by his death, will he not, now that he is alive, fulfill God's promises completely? He will, for you and you and all of us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.